0: You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org slash sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Take a moment and try to remember the biggest crisis you can remember in any church you've ever been involved in. It was one of those crises that has potential to divide the community, not just in opinion, but in physical proximity. Like this conflict runs so deep and is so intense and is such a divisive issue that it can only be resolved with some sort of separation. If you haven't been in a situation like that, give thanks to God, because lots of churches have, and not just in the 21st century, in the 1st century as well. Today we discover that John is writing to a young church in the middle of a crisis. That kind of crisis. The kind of crisis that ends with people Leaving. He tells us about a group that has gone out from them, doesn't He? Apparently, in their congregation, there were some people, and they were there, and they had some ideas. We're going to talk about those ideas in just a minute. They had some opinions. They had some leaders that wanted to take things in a different direction. And John's response to that was to say they've they've separated from the community. They've gone out from us. But he writes here, To encourage those who remain to remain faithful. Like, stay strong, be encouraged. Jesus loves you, abide in him, stick with him. Whatever the conflict must have been, it must have been the sort of thing that had potential to rock this young community to its core. And John's word to them is a word that echoes through the centuries, because surely some of the folks in the congregation who stuck around were tempted to follow the crowd. Surely some of them were good friends and deeply committed, perhaps in the same family. And they had to decide, like Jesus or the other guys. And John wants them to know, he wants us to know, But sometimes following Jesus means not following the other guy. Sometimes following Jesus means not following the crowd. So what was the conflict about? What was the debate? There's a lot in this passage that has to be untangled to get a really clear sense of what the conflict was about. Some of the language in this passage has been taken up and used in the last 2,000 years in some very surprising and often very unhelpful ways. You get the language of the Antichrist. Anybody heard of him? Nobody, really. (laughs) No, really. We've heard of this, this figure, right? And typically, when we hear about the Antichrist, we say, who... The question comes along, who is the Antichrist? And usually somebody has an answer for that. In the Middle Ages, it was the Pope. In the 70s, it was, uh, who was the guy? The Secretary of the Treasury, I think. Anybody remember this one? Usually it's someone on the other side of the political aisle from you. Just go with that, right? Like there's always, an every generation or every couple of years, there's a new, hey, maybe that's the Antichrist. And when we come to the text of the Bible and we ask that question, we get some surprising information. We typically think about that language about the antichrist, which apparently is what the conflict in this church was about. They were divided over like this concept of antichrist and what like what's going on here and do we follow that guy or Jesus and who's coming and what's going on? We typically associate the language of Antichrist with what book of the Bible? Anybody want to t- guess? Say it louder. Say it a little bit louder. Revelation. You know how many times the word Antichrist shows up in the book of Revelation? Zero. What's that about? Like all of it. I'm not, not, no, I'm not trying to cast dispersion or blame on you. But if there's something in the air about the world we live in where we've taken a word out of the Bible and we've stuck it in context that it is never used in. So we tend to think Antichrist, Revelation, end times, plagues, tribulation, cosmic collapse, into the world as we know it kinds of stuff, don't we? The word Antichrist shows up five times in the New Testament four times in 1 John, one time in 2 John, and one time it's plural. That ought to worry you. <laughs> you don't have to worry about one Antichrist. You've got to worry about, John says, a bunch of them. Many, he says, in the first century have already come. Do I have your attention yet? What's going on here? What, what do we make of this language? And why was it such a big deal in this community 2,000 years ago? Language gets a little more complicated when we hear something like this. Children, it's the last hour. What does that mean? Well, surely it means it's the end of the world, right? I mean, we read this and we hear John say it's the last hour, and I read that book by that guy about the end times, and surely this is the end times. Except he said it 2,000 years ago. What do we do with that? how do we untangle that how do we take our assumptions and all the things we've heard in the media or in like bad christian fiction and sort of set that aside and just deal with what the bible says itself so how do we untangle it first thing you need to know is that the word christ is the Greek translation. We don't get into language as much, but we're doing it today, so just buckle your seatbelt and roll with it for a minute, okay? The word Christ is the Greek translation of a word that comes from Hebrew. Anybody want to take a guess what it is? You're going to kick yourself when I tell you. Somebody knows, but it's Messiah. Messiah. So when John talks about Antichrist, he's taking a Hebrew term, Messiah, and we've, we've heard that word before, right? And he's translating it into Greek for this group of people, and then he takes this prefix, anti, sticks it right in front. will get to that in a minute. So if we're going to understand like what the Bible says about this figure, or mo- all these figures, who are many Antichrists have come how do we handle that what do we do with it well it's helpful to know that for several hundred years around the coming of like 150 years before jesus came to another 70 years after jesus came and even 135 or so years after jesus came there were figures who popped up in jewish communities who thought or at least their followers thought they were guess what the messiah so we get figures like this 150 160 years before Jesus was born A guy named Judas Maccabeus shows up because the Syrians hope I get my empires right on this one were oppressing the Jewish people had come in leader, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember that? For, for say that, that three times quick or something like that. Oh, You'll get a prize at the end. Antiochus Epiphanes was slaughtering Jewish boys and desecrating the temple and all kinds of torturous things. And this guy Maccabeus leads a revolt and they kick him out. They, they run the bad guy out. He must be the Messiah. The Chosen One to liberate god's people there's a festival that got launched after he ran the pagans out of the temple you may have heard of it it's called hanukkah still celebrated and observed so time passes that dynasty went on for a long time eventually the romans showed up and crushed it and during the time of the roman empire in palestine jerusalem judea all that space right there, little revolts would rise up. Sometimes big revolts would rise up. And the Romans would crush them. And it happens again and again and again. And oftentimes, those little revolts have the sense or the expectation, sometimes even the language, of being a messianic movement. What I want you to hear me say is, 150 years before Jesus was born, and another 70 to 130 years after he was born, you have Jewish groups saying, There's the Messiah. And they're not talking about Jesus, all right? Now, we need to think about this word. in that context and if we do it begins to make more sense doesn't it because if this is about an apocalyptic end times figure who's going to come and sort of bring the end of the world then well hey you know we've made it a couple of millennia he didn't do a very good job of the end of the world thing did he because here we are and then we're told there's lots of them many antichrists have come but if we're thinking this is in the context of 1st century messianic movements, which are more about politics than apocalypse, right, because a messiah, 1st century B.C., 1st century A.D., was typically understood to be a political figure, a warrior who would run out the whoever happened to be oppressing us this week and take the throne, okay, So when you hear the word Messiah, outside the New Testament, think politics. Think politics. Think revolution. Think there's the warrior who will rescue us from slavery in our own land. The other thing you need to know is that that little prefix, anti- In our, in English, it's typically an oppositional word, right? If you are anti something, you are, you're like, bring it on, right? Like, there's a fight and we're going to have it. We are against this. We are opposed to this. We are contrary to this. And it's a very, like, anti for us is a term that's just very antagonistic. In New Testament Greek, though, it wasn't always that way. Sometimes it just means substitute. Or alternative. <laughs> like, not this one, but that one. Thanks very much. And so if we kind of take it that way, and we think, alright, first century Jewish political movements, and lots of them, and you can pick one of them, maybe this term in context, remember it doesn't show up in Revelation, only shows up in 1 John and 2 John. Maybe this, in context, isn't actually talking about something that's in our future at all. Maybe it's talking about something that happened in the first century and ended in the first century. Maybe the thing that split the community was the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, isn't really around right now because he's gone off to be enthroned at the right hand of the God, the Father, But you know, there's a new Messianic movement around the corner down the street on the other side of town. And some people think that guy... Like, we haven't seen Jesus in 20 years or 30 years or however many years. He ascended and that was great and it was cool at the time and the Gospel's going out and there's churches being planted, but the things... Like, Rome's getting pretty intense, folks. And like they're showing up and there's more soldiers around than there used to be. And Simon is over there, and people are following him, and maybe we should go see what that's about. And you can imagine what it would be like in a local church context if half of them are saying, no, Jesus is the Messiah, and the other half are saying, no, Simon Bargiora is. Or John of Geshala is. And those are the names of a couple of guys who are actually leading revolutionary mo- movements 66, 67, 68 years after Jesus was born right before Rome crushed Jerusalem and shredded the temple. Take a minute and put yourself in that situation. Like you've had an experience of Jesus. You, you're, you're just like John says at the beginning, Like we declare to you what we've seen, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at, we've touched with our hands, and you can feel he's anticipating this problem. He's saying, We have beheld Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the One who reveals the Father. He is the gift of grace from the God of Israel. He's the Chosen One. The Anointed One. He's the Messiah. He is our Lord. And now, there's a group who said, we're not so sure anymore. John, that guy over there, the other guy, has a pretty good story. Maybe he's the Christ. And John says, you heard this was going to happen. And you're thinking, where did we hear this was going to happen? After all, preacher, you already said the word antichrist doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible. Who's predicting this thing if it... Well, the word antichrist doesn't, but the word false Christ does. You know that. Shows up twice, once in Matthew and once in Mark. Thirteen twenty-two. Jesus is with his disciples and they're in the temple in Mark 13. And uh, somebody says, hey Jesus, (laughs) check out the building project. They've just rebuilt this big temple and isn't it beautiful? Look at the stones and the carving and the mason work and it's just, isn't it spectacular? You can read it this afternoon if you want, Mark 13. And Jesus kind of ultimate party pooper here yeah yeah i see you like the stones but i'm gonna go ahead and tell you in less than a generation not one of those bricks will be left on top of the other the whole thing's gonna get torn down and they're kind of quiet for a little while they keep walking because they thought they were going to have this big moment of hey check out the pretty temple and jesus just on that they get to the mount of olives and somebody finally says all right jesus what gives like Tell us about that. When will the end come? And they're not asking about the end of the world. They're asking about the end of the temple that Jesus just said, hey, it's not going to last forever. The whole thing's going to come down in one big pile of crashing, burning rubble. Tell us about that, Jesus. Like, what's going on? And he starts saying, well, you're going to hear about wars, and you're going to hear about rumors of wars, and things are going to get crazy. And And guess what happened about 40 years later? The Roman troops, under the leadership of a general named Vespasian, who would later become the emperor emperor himself, marched into Jerusalem, marched into Judea and surrounded the city. And the earth shook under the hooves of horse after horse after horse as the Roman cavalry rode into the area. And Jesus said, you know, when that happens, you better hope it's not winter because you will not have time to go get your jacket, bud. Remember this passage? You better hope it's not, you better hope you're not pregnant because you're going to have to run fast. that? Mark 13. And many will come who are false Christ, false Messiahs, he says, and say, I am he. Jesus says, don't believe a word of it. So we have Jesus himself. Saying there's this thing called the end that's coming in 40 years, ish, it will be the end of the temple, and there will be false messiahs running around all over the place. And I think that helps us with the one other confusing thing about First John chapter two, because there's still that last hour bit happening. Children, it's the last hour. As you've heard antichrist is coming, right? Jesus told us false messiah, false messiahs would come. Antichrist false messiah, same thing. It's a they're synonyms. So now, like you've heard this antichrist false messiah figure was coming, turns out we've seen a bunch of them, right? Jesus has been vindicated with his prediction because not one but Like, he was right and more than right. They're all over the place. Many antichrists have come. And from this, we know that it's the last hour. And if we have Jesus' speech on the Mount of Olives in the background, the presence of false messiahs lines up with the destruction of the temple. Which means, because the evidence would suggest the whole last hour thing isn't referring to the end of the world since, well, hey, we're still here, right? Right? We didn't miss the end of the world, did we? John is telling them, warning them to stand firm, to hold tight, to stay strong, because the force of the empire is rising. Jesus' prediction of false messiahs has come true, so expect the end of the temple era as well. It's the last hour before the temple is destroyed. We tracking? That's probably a little more kind of historically complicated than we typically do, but we got to take what the Bible gives us, don't we? In the New Testament, and let me say this firmly, strongly, enthusiastically. In the New Testament, the word antichrist is not used of a future, fearful, apocalyptic, world, dictator kind of character. Not once. In the Bible, the word antichrist is used with regard to false messianic movements in the first century. And let me tell you what it was like. 66 to 70 AD is what we call the first Jewish war. There were uh, several factions of Jewish folks who uh, chased after specific revolutionaries. Three of the ones we know about, the most well-known ones who led different factions in Jerusalem, are men named John of Geshala, Eliezer ben Simon, and Simon Bar-Giora. They are described as men who aspired to defeat the Romans and become kings of the Jews. They wanted to wield the sword and gain the scepter. And different groups of Jewish people aligned themselves with different ones of these Messiah figures. To the extent that Rome didn't have to fight that hard to defeat Jerusalem because these factions were fighting among themselves. And come 70 A.D., not one stone was left on top of the other. Jerusalem was in a rubble. And the temple was burned to the ground. John is writing to a congregation in a situation like that. And he's saying sometimes following Jesus means you don't follow the crowd Don't chase after false messiahs. Don't chase after false saviors. I don't care how charismatic they are. I don't care how many other people are following them. I don't care how many people that you love. I don't care if your brother, your mother, your sister goes out to follow John or Eleazar or Simon. You stay with Jesus. Sometimes, following Jesus means not following the crowd. And you can imagine the pressure they must have felt. I mean, for John to write this letter, this isn't a like, well, we're glad they're not around anymore. It wasn't that kind of church conflict. It was, my heart is broken because people I love are going after another Messiah and I, maybe I should go and maybe I could... I don't. There's this struggle and it's deep and you can sense the fracture in the community and the grief and the mourning and he wants to encourage them and draw them together and hold them tight and keep them Faithful. Don't follow the other guy. Don't follow the crowd. Don't chase after them. You abide in Christ, which we mean, which means Messiah, abide in the Messiah. The Messiah, Jesus. That's where you get eternal life. This whole letter and this passage especially, brothers and sisters, is about not losing sight of Jesus, the true Messiah. And one of the ways John does that is with this encouragement that they bear an anointing. Now again, to understand why he says that, we got to do a little bit of that language work. We talked about the word Christ already, right? And you got these group of folks who've left and sometimes it seems like Antichrist is the leader of the group, and sometimes it seems like Antichrist language is attributed to anybody who follows a false messiah. John says, you got these folks, the Antichrist party, the false messiah party, and they've gone to do what they're going to do, but you have, he says, an anointing. And in Greek, the word for anointing is chrisma. What's that sound like? It does sound like Christmas. It also sounds like Christ. (laughs) So there's a play on words, right? There's antichrist, but you have the charisma. There's false messiahs; you have the anointing. Stay strong in that. He's trying to strengthen the community, right? And what does he mean by this anointing? He means like the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the True One has taken you to Himself, and He has He has pledged Himself to you. He has made covenant with you. He has committed Himself to you. And yes. He may not be immediately visible to your eyes right now, but He is coming and He will come. Abide in Him so that when He is revealed, we may have confidence before Him and not to be put to shame at His coming. Right? Sometimes, following Jesus means not following the crowd. And that's really hard because Jesus! <laughs> like, wouldn't it be easier if He just showed up sometimes? Like physically present in the body. So that we could, like Thomas, reach out and touch the scars on his hands. Wouldn't that make things easier? If we could see him. John says, He has taken those nail scarred hands and He has placed them on you. And you belong to Him. Christ has given you the charisma, the anointing. You are His. Stand firm. Our world is not free from Messiah figures, is it? It shows up in all sorts of areas of life, politics not least. Every election cycle, at least one candidate, perhaps multiple ones, will portray themselves as the only ones who can give you hope. The only ones who can save whatever mess we're in right now. Sometimes following Jesus means not following the crowd. And the church needs to pay attention. Remember, John says, I write these things about those who would deceive you? (laughs) Pay attention. There's nobody on the face of the planet no matter what party they're in who can save the world. And anyone who thinks they can are propping themselves up as a false Christ. Sometimes churches get the Messiah syndrome. Can we call it that? There are a couple of churches in North America, who in the last couple of decades have explicitly presented themselves as the hope of the world. I'm not going to name their names. I'll tell you later if you want to know. The mission fails without us. This church is the hope of the world. Apparently, none of the other thousands and thousands of churches can help out with this. It all rides on us. I have heard pastors stand in the pulpits and say those exact words. And brothers and sisters, we all need to know that Jesus can do just fine without any of us. One of the most important things I ever realized was the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ does not need me. Thanks be to God, he wants me and loves me, but he does not need me. And it doesn't matter how prominent a church or a pastor is, it does not matter how many TV stations they are on or how many people watch the live stream, it does not matter how many books have been written or how many sermons have been preached or how many tens of thousands of people listen, Jesus does not need us. He's just fine. The good news is He wants us. and He desires. He desires to be at work through His faithful church. The sooner we embrace the fact that He does not need us, the sooner we will play an instrumental role in his mission to bring the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. He doesn't need us. Thanks be to God. He wants us. And he loves us. And he has proven the perfection of his love with the wounds in his hands, in his feet, in his face, in his side, down his back. He has proven the perfection of his love by carrying his cross. Faithfulness means remembering the faithfulness of Jesus when some other movement, some other leader, some other dynamic, charismatic person looks appealing. Only one Messiah has carried a cross for the life of the world. Lots of them carried crosses. (laughs) That's what Rome did to all the Messiah types. Only one has done it to save your life. To save you for his new creation. Only one. And he calls... He invites our unqualified, unhindered, unreserved allegiance. And when that happens, when we abide in that, when we live in that, it's life. It's life now, and it's life eternally. Do not be deceived, John says to the church then and now. Don't get caught up in the hype. Don't go grab the latest bestseller and get your theology from that instead of the scriptures. If the movie theaters ever open up, somebody's going to make another Antichrist movie. Go home and read your Bible. (laughs) Do the work. Dig in deep. Do it with the church. Let the community be a place where we discover the riches of the treasures of the knowledge of God together. Follow Jesus, not the crowd. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org/sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.